0: Well, thank you very much for uh, having asked me to speak this morning on the current state of headache treatment. Um, I'll go, do more than monoclonal antibodies. I'll uh, talk about mostly about calcitonin gene-related peptide. And um, my disclosures were already shown you. I, I work extensively with industry, anybody who's trying to create new therapies for migraine. But I thought I would winnow this down so that... You could see the disclosures that are relevant, which is that I try to work with any company that is creating new anti tprp uh, therapeutics. And um, I hope that by working with everybody, that maintains my balance. But you need to consider that. At the end of this, I hope to, first of all, I'd really like you to understand <laughs> <and> <laughs> maybe turn this off. No, somebody muted. Okay, good. So let's do the learning objectives. Uh, At the end of this, I'd really like you to understand what the unmet clinical need was going into last year, and I'll go over that with you. And then I'd I'd like you to appreciate how calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP, became a target in migraine pathophysiology and how we ended up with our new therapeutics. I'd like to compare and contrast the efficacy and safety of recently approved and emerging anti-CGRP therapies in migraine. And I'd li- and really, very importantly, I'd like you to be able to identify patients with episodic and chronic migraine that might benefit and be appropriate for new therapies. Now let's start with a case. I think it's always good to start with a case, right? 29-year-old woman, graduate student, headache attacks since high school, Moderate to severe bitemporal pain a few times a month at that time. Took over-the-counter medicines, never missed school, sometimes came home and slept. So those were probably migraine when she was in high school. First trip to the headache center was her second year at university. Her non-prescription acute medicine's not working as well. Now she got episodes of vomiting. The headaches were more severe. She was given triptans, and those helped. And after university, she began working, having more and more frequent attacks. And we hear this kind of history all the time. And her primary care provider appropriately prescribed amitriptyline, but she was too sedated. Propranolol, she was too lightheaded. Topiramate, she she had cognitive fuzziness and couldn't take it. And now she's in graduate school, and her attacks are interrupting her functioning and requiring acute treatments three to five times per week. And these attacks are more likely after a test or a major assignment, but also occur at random. So she has some months with high frequency episodic migraine, where she's getting headache 10 to 14 days per month. She has some months where she has chronic migraine. She has headache 15 or more days per month, more often than not. She has medication overuse because she's using triptans, and combination analgesics at least 10 days a month. And and how would we treat all of these diagnoses? She essentially, she has three diagnoses. She's going from episodic to chronic, and she has medication overuse headache. And this is where the clinical paradigm has has changed. And it's actually very good news. It's really, really been an amazing switch. Uh, What were the unmet needs? Well, prior to last year, There were no preventive medicines that were designed specifically for migraine prophylaxis in our lifetime. And as a result, patients were forced to try a variety of medicines designed for other therapeutic areas that generally showed modest benefit for migraine prevention. And since the medicines were not intended for migraine, they caused unwanted adverse events, AEs or side effects, especially in the migraine demographics of young menstruating women of childbearing age and are currently available. Oral migraine preventive medicines generally require a, a gradual titration of dose and months of maintenance and adherence to show effect. So they're slow to show benefit and they require long term persistence by the patient. And then when you get there, if you look at the group of patients that take these drugs, less than half show at least a 50% reduction in their mean monthly migraine days at the optimal dose for an optimal period of time. And many of these oral preventive drugs don't work if the patient is overusing acute medicines, what we used to call rebounds, a medication overuse headache. And they don't help in reducing the overuse of the medicines. These are the um, medicines that uh, that were classified by the AAN-AHS guidelines in uh, terms of level of evidence in 2012. I added a few, which I'll show you. But essentially, level A evidence were for valproate, topiramate, propranolol, timolol, and metoprolol, of which the two anti-epilepsy drugs and propranolol and timolol are actually FDA-approved for episodic migraine. And we would add um, canisartan probably to level A based on two studies since then. Level B was where amitriptyline and venlafaxine sat. You can see calcium channel blockers don't even make this list. And this list is for episodic migraine prophylaxis. And, and prior to 2018, the only drug that was approved for chronic migraine was on toxin A. So that's it. That was our, uh, our um, armamentarium prior to last year. So. And as I said, because each of these medicines was designed for other states, many can't be used for these migraine demographics or have troublesome AEs. And just as examples, we frequently can't use antihypertensives in in our young women because they have low blood pressure to begin with. So I mean, somebody comes in with a systolic, a 90, you're not going to be able to get them on a beta blocker um, and a um, sartan. As far as the anti-epilepsy drugs are concerned, valproate causes polycystic ovaries. Both topiramate and valproate cause birth defects, and then there are cognitive problems with topiramate as well. And tricyclics cause the four horsemen of the apocalypse: dry mouth, constipation, sedation, and weight gain. So everybody says, "Oh, that's the one I want." And then uh, SNRIs also cause sexual dysfunction. So It's not a real um, attractive group of medicines for a healthy 22-year-old, right? I mean, it's it's a problem. And as a result, adherence to oral migraine prevention is terrible. And this was a uh, database analysis that was published in 2015 in which 8,600 patients were evaluated. And if you put patients on these oral medicines at the beginning of a year, You can count on, over 80% of them will stop the drugs by the end of the year. I mean, that is pretty bad, pretty bad adherence. And the reason, in a second study that was um, published uh, six years ago of um, 1,100 patients with migraine, the reasons that they discontinue the prophylactic medicines, big surprise, is lack of efficacy or medication side effects. So that was the state of affairs. And I remember discussing with my colleagues how uh, this was the crying need in migraine. And percolating along was a set of experiments in basic science and pathophysiology that has led to a breakthrough. The breakthrough has to do primarily at this time with calcitonin gene-related peptides, CGRP, although we have some other targets. And CGRP is a neuropeptide that belongs to the calcitonin family, and it can bind to a variety of receptors calcitonin, amylin, adrenomedulin, intermedin. The one we care about is what you see on the left, which is the uh, canonical CGRP receptor. It's a transmembrane receptor that has cyclic AMP activation. And it's present at all the migraine pathogenesis sites. So in the late 80s and early 90s, um, a couple of scientists said, you know, this one might really be worth looking at based on where it is. It's in the meninges. It's in the cortex. It's in the brainstem. It's in the trigeminal cervical complex. It's the most potent endogenous vasodilator that we make. And it's also a, an inflammatory mediator. Let's take a little look at migraine pathophysiology. Let's see if this thing gets the point. Oops, no, that didn't work. Uh, I'm looking for the pointer. There we go. All right. I think we understand migraine pain fairly well. The pain mechanisms of migraine are peripheral, meningeal, in the dura mater. And they are caused primarily by the release of CGRP. And when CGRP is released, it causes profound vasodilation and inflammation within the meninges. So, patients get essentially a sterile meningitis, and then that signal goes back into the brain and is integrated in the trigeminal cervical complex and ascends to the thalamus and the cortex. Where migraine begins, I don't think we have settled. It may begin in the upper brain stem and then have a parasympathetic outflow to the meninges. It may begin. In the hypothalamus, it may begin peripherally, or it may have multicenter activation. But where it starts, we don't know. Where the mechanisms of pain occur, we have a pretty good idea. Um, And the link between CGRP and migraine, besides the location of the receptors, is that in a study that was done in the UK, there's always a UK study like this, patients agreed to have their external jugular um, instrumented, and CGRP levels went up during migraine and down interictally and down if somebody was given subcutaneous sumatriptan. And in Copenhagen, a, a lab infused CGRP IV in patients with migraine, and four hours later they would get a migraine. So those were the links. And then since that time, and this is the example of translational research made real. If you ever want an example of translational research made real, this is it. If you take out CGRP, if you block CGRP, you can terminate or prevent migraine. And that's what the breakthrough has been. And this is a beautiful uh, cartoon by Lars Edmondson, who was one of the guys in the late 80s and early 90s who pointed out that CGRP uh, should be the target. He's the president of the International Headache Society right now. And I'm going to take you through this. Okay, uh, CGRP gets released. It's these little blue balls. And it binds to the CGRP receptor. And then that turns on uh, vasodilation and neurogenic inflammation. Our old friends, triptans have an anti-CGRP action. They work by binding to a serotonin 1D receptor and when they bind to that 1D receptor, that prevents the release of CGRP. They also, through a serotonin-1B effect, vasoconstrict the vasodilation that CGRP causes. So we already had, in a sense, an anti-CGRP therapy. And the decision was made to try to target CGRP in a variety of ways. The first that was shown to be effective was to create a small molecule which would block the CGRP receptor. That's called a GPANT. And the g are on the way. We expect the first two to be approved later this year. The second way to take out CGRP would be to create a monoclonal antibody against the circulating CGRP. And two of those are now approved. The third way to take out CGRP is to create a monoclonal antibody against the receptor. And that too, we have one of those that's been approved. So you can see where this has gone, and it's uh, very exciting and gratifying for those of us that are in this area. The g were first. The g showed the, um, uh, the proof of concept in an article that was the lead article in the New England Journal about 12 years ago, when a, an intravenous g was shown to terminate migraine. And since that time, six G-pants have demonstrated effectiveness in acute migraine treatment. So patients take, the the remaining ones are oral. Patients would take an oral GPAN at the onset of a migraine, work about like a triptan, and terminate the attack by blocking the CGRP receptor and preventing the vasodilation and neurogenic inflammation. The early GPANs turned out to be liver toxic. And the later GPANs, so far so good. I'll be doing a lot of knocking on this wood uh, podium today. And two of them, Ybrojapan and remegepant, which we've studied here, are uh, before the FDA for the indication of acute treatment of migraine. And we expect their approval by the end of this year. Um, and they work about like a triptan, but they're very well-tolerated. The idea was also, if you could terminate a migraine acutely with a gepant by blocking the receptor, if somebody took a gepant every single day, and block the receptor every single day. You could have a preventive therapy. And so, at the AAN last year, atogepant was presented as effective in preventing migraine when given daily. And both atogepant and remegepant are being tested in a preventive trial for in, in regulatory preventive trials for the prevention of migraine. We're going to be doing the atogepant trial um, very shortly. So. Um, g can go both ways. They can be used acutely and they can be used preventively. And in several years, I think we'll have both. But this time next year, we'll have ubrojapan and remedjapan for acute treatment. And the advantage is they don't cause vasoconstriction. They prevent vasodilation. But because of the liver toxicity, the idea is that, well, how else can we take out CGRP without going through the liver? And the idea of creating monoclonal antibodies was uh, was brought up. The problem was: did we really know that you could stop migraine peripherally? Because monoclonal antibodies are huge. So, for example, an anti-CGRP monoclonal antibody here and a G-PAN here, the size difference is that the monoclonal antibody is the size of a truck and the G-PAN is the size of a grain of rice. And monoclonal antibodies do not go into the brain to any significant extent. So it was kind of a a test of whether you could actually stop migraine peripherally. And this is um, one of the inventors of one of the monoclonal antibodies, Sen Shu, And she said, I really think that G work peripherally, and I think these MABs will work. And so uh, two kinds of MABs were created, as I showed you, a MAB against the receptor that she created, and MABs against the CGRP ligand. And when people ask me, well, how do these work in such a broad variety of migraines, the way I think about it is you have a fire in a dome, and you suck all the oxygen out of the dome. It really doesn't matter whether the fire is a coal fire or a paper fire or a wood fire. No oxygen, no fire. No CGRP, no migraine. So that's kind of what's happening here. And it's a big deal, obviously. We had lead articles in New England Journal. Uh, for um, freminezumab and Arenimab. This year we had galcanezumab was shown to be effective in the prevention of episodic cluster headache. First drug ever approved by the FDA for the prevention of cluster. Remegipant, which I showed you, uh, was also published in the, um, the acute uh, or regulatory trial, was also published in the New England Journal. So our patients are asking us about these drugs. There's a lot of, of pressing about them. I wanted to take you through the four of them. Three of them are FDA approved. One will be available by this time next year. Each of them has a four four letter nonsense suffix, which the FDA has affixed in order to distinguish them from later biosimilars that we expect will be on the way. And for those of you that know about neurotoxins, it's a little bit like anabotulinum, and abobotulinum, and incobotulinum. I won't belabor the, the four uh, letters that follow the names. The first one that was approved is arendamab on the left. Arendamab is the only one that's fully human, and it's the only one that targets the receptor. Uh, after that, the other three are, are targeting the CGRP ligand itself, and they have 90 to 95% human, 5 to 10% murine components. Uh, Arenazumab is a monthly subcutaneous injection the patients give themselves with an auto-injector, 70 or 140. Fremanezumab is a monthly injection that they can give themselves, or they can take three shots quarterly. Galconazumab has a loading dose, and then they give themselves a monthly injection after that. Complicating things for galconazumab is that the dose for cluster is different than the dose for migraine prevention. Um, and the cluster patients give themselves three shots every month to, through their cluster cycle to the end of their cluster cycle. And eptodesumab, the one that's not yet approved but will be here by this time next year, is a quarterly intravenous infusion. And as I said, the three on the right are against the CGRP ligand and the one on the left is against the receptor. And they look pretty much the same in terms of efficacy and safety and tolerability. And show you that in a bit. Just to review that again. So here's the arenimab, the one on the left, and it targets the receptor, okay? And uh, fully human. And then freminezumab targets the blue, the blue balls, the CGRP, and it's either quarterly or monthly. And galcanezumab also targets that, and galcanezumab is the one that's approved also for cluster and eptinezumab also targets the CGRP, and it is infusion. How are they given? Uh, the arenumab uh, and galcanezumab both have auto injectors. These auto injectors for internists look should look familiar to you. They're not new. They were used for other therapeutic areas. So the arenumab, Auto-injector is used for a tannercept and the galconazumab auto-injector used for a drug for diabetes and one for psoriasis. Uh, Galconazumab and freminezumab are available by pre-filled syringes if patients prefer. Freminezumab is only available as a pre-filled syringe. So they're pretty convenient in terms of patients having to only take one small subcutaneous injection a month. The major questions, though, are they safe? Are they different than what we have now? Are they an improvement? So I think it's important to start with safety. Um, let's first of all talk about the randomized control trials and the safety extension trials. Uh, but remember, we're in a new, these are new categories of medicine. So no matter how much reassuring stuff we have, we have to really maintain our vigilance and keep looking. Uh, but the one side effect that it was most frequent, was an injection site reaction. And it doesn't usually amount to a hill of genes. Um, every so often, we have to stop, stop one of these uh, drugs because of the injection site reactions. Constipation, a little bit more frequent with um, arenimab, uh, at about 3% in the randomized control trials at 12 weeks, although by a year, it didn't really show up. That's it. And some muscle cramps. I saw one case with arenimab so far. Um, that's really it. They don't go into the brain. They don't make people sleepy or or dumb or uh, have affective change, anything like that. And uh, they don't go through the liver. They go through the reticuloendothelial system. So no LFT abnormalities have been reported. Some people get the sniffles, and we don't know whether and it's transient. We don't know whether they had a cold that day or whether it's the drugs. It wasn't seen with every product. It wasn't always seen in excess of placebo in the, R- in the randomized control trials, so we don't know what to do with that. One of the big questions, though, is CGRP is our most potent endogenous vasodilator. Now, what happens when you take that out and a person needs compensatory vasodilation, homeostatic vascular protection, in the setting of ischemia? whether that be a TIA or whether that be angina. And so what, what happens? Well, I want to show you kind of a jaw-dropping study. This was a study published last year of 88 patients with what they called stable angina and what in neurology would make us run for the, for the hills. These were patients with, they were really sick patients. I mean, they had documented coronary artery disease. Many, I should have put the list up, but many of them had had strokes, many of them had MIs. Uh, they had to have angina monthly for the previous six months. They were then put on a treadmill. And to be a qualifying treadmill, they had to the last three to 12 minutes on the treadmill. And they had to develop ST and T-wave changes on the treadmill that documented Ischemia. You had to see the ischemia on the EKG. If they had angina clinically on the treadmill, then they didn't require quite as much ST and T wave changes on the EKG. But you, you had to really know they were that you had precipitated ischemia on the treadmill. You say you're not satisfied? Okay. So then they brought him back a month later, and the second, and they had to do a second treadmill, and then the second treadmill had to match the first treadmill. So they had to the last uh, from uh, 3 to 12 minutes, and they had to develop angina and uh, EKG changes. And then, having qualified with two treadmills, they were brought back a month later for a third treadmill. And in the third treadmill, they were either given intravenous placebo or they were given 140 milligrams of IV arenamap. IV arenamap, right? We give subcutaneous arenamap. And the reason they gave intravenous was they wanted an instantaneous CMAX. And they wanted to completely take out the CGRP receptors basically instantly. And then an hour or so later, they put them on the treadmill again. So they did a third treadmill. And no change. So everybody got their angina. Everybody got their EKG changes. Everybody stayed on the treadmill the same period of time. Nobody had an infarction. There wasn't any difference in the treadmill time. Or the time to the onset of the EKG? Yes. Stuart, these were not headache patients. These were not they headache patients volunteer, patients. volunteer patients done at the Mayo Clinic. They paid them to do this I assume so. Yeah. Well, they probably so did. It's okay. You can infuse this, and in maybe some bad. Look, yeah, look. It's, a, it's a really interesting IRB submission, and the um, uh, and and you know, uh, as for those of you that don't do clinical research, our IRB, all IRBs, prevent. A significant financial benefit to patients. They limit the amount we can pay a patient for a clinical trial because they don't want financial benefit to play a role when patients are going into clinical trial. So these patients probably got 50 or 75 bucks at most for doing this. And uh, I did talk to the neurologists that were involved. They said it was the most difficult study they had ever done. Uh, they couldn't believe how sick the patients were. They almost pulled the plug during it. I mean, it was a and how, and how the Mayo approved it, well, I mean, it, 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 it turned out great, number one, and very reassuring, number two, because here you have patients where you know they're ischemic, and you've taken out all their CGRP receptors, and nothing happens. So it's not everything you want to know, but it sure is a reassuring randomized controlled trial. And in the long-term studies, we now have five years of data on some of these um, monoclonal antibodies. We haven't seen any vascular signals so far. And, well, but I'll come back to that. So uh, if we look at four and a half years it was presented last month at the American Headache Society meeting, the overall incident rates of AEs uh, during the four and a half years of open label treatment phase were similar to or lower than those observed in the double-blind placebo-controlled trial. There was no dose relationship. This is for ab, uh, No increases over time. No new AEs were seen. Uh, and the most frequent adverse events not clearly associated with the drug. So UTIs, arthralgias, back pain, um, and um, respiratory symptoms that were all transient. Uh, very reassuring data. We have three-year data fully published um, so, so far, so good, right? And it's worth thinking about this a little carefully. I mean, if you look at the randomized control trials of our previous oral preventive drugs, and you look at the dropout rate in those randomized control trials due to adverse events, for amitriptyline, about 12% dropped out by three months. For topiramate, 44% of patients dropped out by 12 weeks. And it got into a big fight with the AAN over the guidelines because the guidelines committee said, if you have a dropout rate of 44%, that really raises the question of whether you can say that drug is a level A evidence drug. For the uh, proprenol, it was 20% dropout rate. Uh, for the MABs you can see the dropout rate went from one7 to 4%. So very significant difference in dropout rate due to adverse events. And no serious treatment-related adverse events. Tolerability, again, comparable to placebo. But you see my little pointy finger. Continued vigilance with a new drug class is mandatory. I'll come back to that a little bit at the end when we talk about who you're going to select for these drugs. But I think now we've we've talked about safety. Let's talk about primary endpoints. Um, The way these studies were done is to uh, evaluate the drop in mean monthly migraine days at various endpoints, but specifically for primary, at 12 weeks. And um, the placebo-subtracted data on these drugs is useful from a regulatory and scientific standpoint, and it is of no use clinically. (laughs) What we really need to look at is, where were the patients at the beginning of the study and what happened in terms of drop of mean monthly migraine days so we can tell the patients what to expect. And they all look very similar. In the episodic migraine trials, and these are the EM trials, the average number of of monthly migraine days at the beginning of the trial was six to eight migraine days a month, so one to two uh, migraine attacks a week, and the drop as you can see here, for all of them, was about three or four days. So about a drop of half in their mean monthly migraine days at 12 weeks. For chronic migraine, the mean monthly migraine days were higher, because chronic migraine requires 15 or more headache days per month. So the drop, uh, the uh, baseline was 16 to 18 mean monthly migraine days, and the drop was four to six migraine days per month. The, six, um, the drop of 6.6 monthly migraine days at three months for erenumab, for example, would give patients between two and three months of no migraine extra per year. So the magnitude of effect for patients is very significant. And that's why I, uh, one of our problems with onubatrinotoxin A studies was everybody looked at placebo-subtracted data and missed how dramatic the effects could be. Um, but it's in the secondary endpoints. I mean, that, that's I think that's important enough. But the secondary endpoints really tell a very interesting and encouraging study uh, uh, story. One is, as we said, you know, you give somebody topiramate, it takes you a month to work up to the dose. Same thing for amitriptyline. Then you wait three months and see if it's effective. These drugs have their onset in in these studies. Uh, uh, separating from placebo in a week. They all separate from placebo in a week. Uh, Here's uh, arenimab, fully published data from last year, both episodic and chronic migraine, and most patients in the study had meaningful clinical benefit within a month. Now, our patients are harder. right? We have more difficult patients, probably wouldn't have been in the studies for most of our patients, so we encourage them to wait three months, six months. I'll show you some data on that, but you can have patients that have very dramatic and very quick onset. In ep- for eptinezumab, they were able to calculate what the likelihood of a migraine was in the first day, and within 24 hours of an active infusion in a randomized control trial of eptinezumab, more than half the patients had a, um, ha- had a day without migraine. So there was a drop of more than 50% in the likelihood of a migraine within 24 hours of the infusion. It's almost like an acute drug. You take out all of the CGRP, circulating CGRP, with eptinezumab. So very, very early onset. The second part is that there is improvement over time. And so the mean monthly migraine days keeps going down. Uh, this was uh, data that was presented last month and uh, mean baseline was 8.7 days. This was episodic migraine. They had a five-year uh, study, and this was out at four and a half years. And at um, one month remem- uh, three months, remember, the drop is about three or four days. At, five, at four and a half years, the drop is close to six days. So the patients have gone from 8.7 days down to 3.6 days. And it doesn't seem like it's leveled off even at five years. So there does appear to be cumulative benefit in leaving patients on. If you take our tough patients, if you take our chronic migraine patients with medication overuse, uh, these drugs can convert patients from chronic migraine to episodic migraine in the majority of people who get it, and from uh, rebounders to non-rebounders, from acute medication overuse to non-overuse. And you can see uh, here's chronic migraine with and without acute medication overuse. And they do pretty well. So here's chronic migraine converting to episodic migraine at 12 weeks uh, without acute medicine overuse, so about 57%,
1: and with
0: acute medication use, about 50%. Uh, And overall, you can see the drop here. So they really do convert, and pretty much the majority of patients, over 50%, convert from chronic to episodic and from acute medicine to non-overuse. And if you evaluate the specific, take out the two groups and look over time, here's at a year, what you're seeing is this conversion is continuing in terms of chronic migraine with medication overuse. This is the mean monthly migraine days. If they're not overusing, AMO is acute medication overuse. So here's chronic migraine with no acute medication overuse. keeps getting better across a year. And here's with acute medication overuse across a year. And then the very good news for us is it didn't seem to matter what they were overusing could be analgesics, it could be combination analgesics, aspirin, acetaminophen, caffeine, it could be tryptans, it could be combinations of those. They did exclude narcotics, they did exclude butalbital. so we don't know about those. But it didn't matter, they converted, they came, uh, they, they switched from being rebounders to non-well, this makes a big difference for us, because we would have these terrible conversations with people about how, we need to detoxify you from your overuse. And uh, how are we going to do that? And let's walk it all out. And let's do how, much, how many uh, combination analgesics you're going to take per week. And we're going to put it out as we, as we raise your amitriptyline, your tropiramate, your propranolol. In this case, we didn't have to do any of that. We just put them on the drug, and they convert. So that's, as the migraines come down, the overuse comes down. No CGRP, no migraine. It doesn't matter whether migraine is associated with medication overuse or not. And there's a lot more secondary endpoints that look unprecedented. In a randomized controlled trial of eptinezumab, at one year, amazingly enough, they did a placebo controlled trial across a year. And at a year, more than 50% of patients, I think it was 55% of patients, had at least a 75% drop in their mean monthly migraine days. Not 50%, 75%, which appears to be linked to improvement in disability. And in the open label trials, uh, the, uh, over 40% of patients had at least a 75% drop in their mean monthly migraine days at a year. So those are unprecedented responder rates. And uh, one of our problems with A toxin A is that If we gave it to people with chronic migraine, it did reduce triptan use. But it did not, in the regulatory trials, reduce the analgesic and the combination analgesic use. These drugs do. That's new. Um, And then I talked to you about conversion. These drugs have been studied in randomized controlled trials of patients who have had a lack of success with two, three, four categories of previous prevention tricyclics, beta blockers, AEDs, SNRIs, and they still work. So those are the kind of patients we're going to be using them in, and that's very reassuring. And these are randomized control trials that the EU mandated. I talked about their quick onset of effect. They're effective with comorbid illnesses, such as depression and anxiety. Patient reported outcomes of disability and impact get better. So far, safety and tolerability look great including that rather remarkable cardiovascular safety study. So these all show, all of these endpoints are an improvement over our previous medicine. That's why this is such a ground shaking time in migraine treatment. So I've already said that I think they're an improvement over what we have now. But what about the conventional way of looking at this, which is number needed to treat, number needed to harm. For number needed to treat at least at 12 weeks in randomized control trials, they're not that different. This was a study published uh, a couple of months ago in cephalalgia. And uh, the NNT numbers are pretty much the same for propranolol, different RCTs for topiramate, onabot. But number needed to harm, that's a lot different. So number needed to harm for arenimab, 1,000, 250, Number needed to harm for, for topiramate, 8, 13. And if you do the ratio of number needed to harm to uh, number needed to treat, you want the highest possible ratio. That really tells you what kind of uh, power you have in your new classification. For arenumab, your uh, NNH to NNT ratio, 40 to 140 your NNH to NNT ratio for topiramate or propranol, two. So this is, these are an improvement over what we have now. Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes on now that we're not used to, that old people like, like myself are not used to, which is social media reports. And so I want to at least caution how you're assessing adverse events. I think it's important to have peer-reviewed adverse event prospective open label extension trials. uh, And um, many of these have been fully published, and we want more. Single cases that are reported over social media without context, or the FDA adverse event reporting system FAIRS, which is a dashboard where everybody can just put in whatever they want, and it consists of everything reported without providing clinical circumstances or vetting. They're really not adequate for evaluating uh, uh, adverse event assessments. And what we really need is like a Steve Nissen evaluation of 100,000 patients on these drugs and 100,000 patients, similar patients not on these drugs, to look at whether there's any change in the baseline for AEs of concern, meaning vascular. But at this point, I'm I'm quite happy with, with the absence of signal. Which brings us to the question, who should receive them? And I'll tell you, um, the, um, there w- the, what happened was that the payers began to get um, nervous. And so what they were doing last year was saying that uh, only neurologists should be able to prescribe these, uh, only UCNS court certified <laughs> headache medicine people should be able to prescribe them. And at the American Headache Society, we we thought, this is really bad. Because you take the patients that have uh, the most serious migraine, and a primary care doctor is trying in vain to treat these patients, and they've tried, just like our case, amitriptyline, propranolol, topiramate, and they're stuck. And now the payer is saying, we're not going to let you prescribe without a neurologist or a headache medicine specialist. There are states where there are no headache medicine specialists. There are states where no neurologists are interested in headache. And what happens out in the the periphery is opioids get prescribed. So we thought one way to, to stop that would be to put out a white paper as quickly as possible, which we published in January. And its copyright is released, so you can grab it. And the very first thing we said is that these drugs should be available to be prescribed by any licensed healthcare provider to patients who meet criteria. Because from a primary care standpoint, these are a piece of cake, right? You just show the patient, take it once a month, come back in three to six months, and let's see if your overuse is is gone. Um, So we we divided up patients. We realized that the payers were going to require step edits, even though these drugs are a lot less expensive than, for example, the drugs, the monoclonal antibodies for autoimmune diseases or MS, I mean, a lot less expensive. So we said, well, if they're going to do step edits anyway, let's prevent them from putting in four step edits or five step edits. Let's make it two step edits. And um, we divided patients into lower frequency episodic migraines, four to seven headache days per month, high frequency, eight to 14 days per month, chronic migraine, at least 15 days per month. And said that if a patient had low frequency episodic migraine and had had a lack of success, with any two of the level A or level B drugs, and had documented disability or impact, they should be eligible for these treatments. If they have high frequency episodic migraine, like the the case that I showed, then you don't even need to document the disability if they've had a lack of success with the two. And if they have chronic migraine, they have to have had a lack of success with two or on a botulinum toxin A. So this got published, and we've used it here in New England. And most of our payers uh, are now uh, uh, using this as their their document for who's eligible. We have a few that are not using it that we are browbeating. But most of them are using it. Other parts of the country, though, I was at a meeting last month where I was told that 40% of payers in some parts of the country are not letting internists. Uh, write these drugs. So it's not, um, not done, that's for sure. So in talking about our learning objectives, I mean, I've shown you the unmet clinical needs that resulted from ineffective preventive treatments in migraine, which included that they were designed for other therapeutic areas. They're often contraindicated in our target demographic group. Numerous AEs, two to four months to be effective. Responder rates less than 50%, not effective in medication overuse and sometimes don't lower acute medication use, and patients don't take them even when we prescribe them. CGRP pivotal a role in the pathophysiology of migraine, and the new designer therapies so far appear more effective, safer, and more tolerable than the older treatments, but vigilance is important. And the AHS 2019 white paper sets the standard of care for patient selection with these medicines. It's a watershed moment. There are over 300,000 migraine patients worldwide that have been prescribed this. One of the companies told me that they've reached a million prescriptions, and these antibodies are, safe, are specific for migraine, migraine with or, migraine without or, episodic migraine, chronic migraine, migraine with overuse, without overuse, and one of them for episodic migraine, and uh, work at least in the studies, within one to four weeks with unprecedented responder rates and with great tolerability and safety. We have over 1,500 patients on them already in our headache center. And we hope that this will result in improved adherence and improved function and improve our patients' lives dramatically. Having said that, what I really would like is to not have to go through the stupid step edits of drugs that the patients are going to stop anyway. And so I'll. I'll leave you with a quote from David Dodick, who is president of the American Migraine Foundation. I see a day within our careers when it will not be acceptable to treat patients by having them cycle through a ragtag group of drugs that over 80% will stop within a year just to get to disease-specific and mechanism-based treatments that were specifically designed to treat the disease. And I thank you very much. And that's time for questions. Tell us the relative cost of headache free days with this versus uh-huh. the current use of drugs? In other words, is yeah. that a metric to think about? One thing is yes, the overall number of days are down, but could you tell us the relative cost of reducing the days? Right. It gets very complicated. Let me give you some numbers first. The cost of these drugs is $6,900 a year. Um, the um, The cost of uh, uh, drugs for Remicade, for example, would be 80 grand a year. Uh, the MS drugs, 70 or 80 grand a year. So they, they are a lot cheaper. But it's a very complicated calculus because you've got to take into account how many patients you're going to need to treat and their responder rates, and then how many patients you're going to need to treat and their responder rates, and then the number of migraine-free days. And we, we've done a number of pharmacoeconomic evaluations, and then there's a group called ICER. I don't know if you know about ICER, but ICER is a group that tries to do the economic uh, analysis for payers. And uh, ICER did the analysis and said that if the drugs came in at $9,000 per year, they would represent a very significant improvement and saving for patients. And they came in at 6,900. So it was felt that the pharmacoeconomics of this uh, was reasonable. But it doesn't give you the per attack number. I'm not sure I know that. It would be a very interesting analysis. Very difficult. but Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, you want to take it? Sure. Yeah, so I'm curious about the peripheral mechanism of action, and especially with the receptor lines, if you are successful with a peripheral receptor blockade, it suggests there's a second mediator that would, in theory, be an additional target for therapeutic intervention? There is a secondary target. Um, the one that's being studied is pituitary adenylate cyclase activating peptide, PACAP. There are two forms of PACAP, PACAP27 and pacap Uh, 38. And both of those have several receptor types in addition. And an anti-PACCAP 38 receptor monoclonal antibody failed in all of the primary and secondary endpoints last year. But um, infusion of PACCAP causes migraine four hours later. And there is a scramble to find the other receptors peripherally. And there must be other targets, because not everybody responds to the drugs. We're getting the idea of receptor versus ligand. Um, So the answer is, we're looking for other targets. Thank you for a great presentation. (laughs) I'm an occupational medicine physician, so one of the things that we look at in FMLA is migraine headaches. are one of the top leading causes for lost days of work. Are there any studies that have been done to show that reduction in headaches has also led to increased productivity and missed days from work? That's my first question. The second question is, if you are a patient, and I'm looking again from workers' point of view, if you're on the two traditional meds, as per your white paper, uh, is it appropriate for an emergency medicine physician to use this for the acute headaches? Well, I'll take the second question first, those in the back. Question is, uh, could an emergency room physician use these drugs acutely in the ER? I think that the question is eptinezumab. Eptinezumab is an infusion, doesn't have side effects that we can see. I mean, people just don't even know that we did the randomized control trial. We couldn't tell whether people got them or not. I mean, we really couldn't. Except the ones that got it stopped having headache very quickly. Uh, so, and if if they have a drop in the likelihood of migraine in 24 hours. Why not? You know, and so this has been a, a bandied about, and I don't know whether the company that makes eptinezumab is planning an acute ER trial, but I know that uh, we have talked to them about it. And I don't see any reason why you wouldn't try that in the ER. Um, then the question is, does that lock the patient into eptinezumab quarterly? And here at Dartmouth, where we have an app, av- we checked our patients have an average of one and a half to two hours one way to come see us. We hate to have them come in quarterly for their onabot or their infusions if they could take a shot at home. So then the question is, well, when the epithinizumab wears off, and at the end of the quarter, could they switch to a sub-Q and be fine? So there's a lot of questions unanswered. Epithinizumab's not yet approved yet, either. We don't know the cost. So there's, um, there are a lot of questions. They, 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 there's a, there are a lot of pharmacoeconomic studies on reducing migraine days being linked to improved productivity. For these drugs, uh, there have been uh, two patient reported outcome uh, tools that were created for these drug studies. One was called the Migraine Physical Inventory Disability Assessment, or MPFID, and the other is MFIC, the, which I can't remember what it stands for, but MFIC is evalu- evaluates productivity and disability for the week, and MPFID is a daily uh, log that the patient keeps. And as you would expect, all of the PROs, whether it be quality uh, SF36, quality of life, um, uh, MPFID, M- MFIC, all of those have improved pretty dramatically with these drugs. We, we haven't, I haven't seen a study on the, on the work productivity index, or work productivity assessment index (WPAI), which is the usual outcome tool to look at work productivity, but I'm pretty sure there are some in the works. So, I mean, it's pretty intuitive. I mean, if the patient is getting three months of no migraine a year, where previously they uh, had migraine days, the, the patients say, and I might, some of my nurses are here, they'll tell you. Every single day, morning, noon, night, patients come in and say, this has completely transformed my life. I've never felt like this before. This is unbelievable. I don't know what to do with all my extra time. So it's very, very exciting. So it's not just absenteeism, it's presenteeism, it coming right. to work with that headache and not being productive. That's, and so both absenteeism and presenteeism are evaluated in these, in these uh, tools. Thank you. And patients who take the prophylactic antibody, how does the sumotriptone still work if it's on the same pathway? Uh, the question was, in a patient who's on a preventive monoclonal antibody, how does sumatriptan or triptans work? They work fine, uh, but what we didn't appreciate when we did the studies and what we're seeing in, in practice, unexpectedly and really great, is not only is the frequency of the migraines going down, but the intensity and the duration of the migraines is going down, and their need for triptans is going down. And the patients say to me, I can't even think of the last time I took sumatriptan. I, can, I never could use an acetaminophen. Now I take an acetaminophen, and it works for me. So when they do need it, it still works. But, uh, and interestingly, and, even, and related to that, because you would think, well, sumatriptan is having an anti-CGRP effect. You've got no CGRP. How's it going to work? Interestingly, the G-PANTS, also work in the setting of having somebody on a monoclonal antibody, where they block the CGRP receptor. It's an N of three that were presented at the meetings. But still, it was very like 14 attacks for each of the uh, different monoclonal antibodies with g on board. And what that tells us is this is not a 100% shutdown of CGRP. Maybe the intravenous one, but not our subcutaneous ones. There's still some either circulating CGRP or, or available receptors for a GPAN to bind to, or for a sumatriptan to prevent the release of. So um, that's good for patients. They still have acute options. What is the next plan to move from the six-day reduction to complete reduction? Where do you think yes. that next piece is going? Well, so, that's just so, so dramatic. Yeah, where, yeah. Where are you going to 100%? Well, I mean, another target. Uh, But interestingly, there was a study published last year on looking at what were called 100% responders. These are patients who get 30 days in a row of no headache. The 100% response rate goes up across time. They don't generally maintain a 100% for a year, but they get more and more 100% 30-day periods, longer and longer 30-day periods. So it's not complete resolution of migraine, but there is, I do tell patients, you know, the longer you go, the greater the likelihood, especially patients who are already at a 75% reduction, which we see very frequently, uh, that they're going to have 30 days. And sometimes when I bring that up, they say, oh yeah, I already had 30 days of no headache. So, uh, but we need more targets. Yes? I'm just guessing, uh, because you didn't mention it, but it sounds like people probably lied to you Women that potentially can get pregnant yeah I, that's a very good question I have a conversation with every single patient about contraception and I won't prescribe them if I if I'm not satisfied with their contraception uh, and the reason is that the half-life of these drugs is a, is twi- is uh, 30 days so I don't even want them to get pregnant for six months after they stop the drug. And we saw in the open label trials they stopped the drug. Their headaches didn't come back for four to six months. So we saw this gradual uh, return of the headaches. We have no idea about safety of taking um, out CGRP or its receptor in a developing fetus. So at this point, given our demographics, all of us at the headache center are pretty scrupulous about asking about uh, contraception. and. If there's any plan on pregnancy, I don't start them. Great questions, great presentation. Thank, Thank you very you. much.